Welcome to the Breast Cancer Podcast. I'm breast surgeon, Dr. Deepahala Harvey, and I'm Monica Brooks, a breast cancer advocate. And we are both breast cancer survivors. We're here to talk about all things breast cancer. From surgery to survivorship, we know firsthand the challenges a breast cancer diagnosis can bring. We are here to tackle topics that impact our lives. Let's get started. So today, let's welcome Dr. Shabana Diwani. She is an amazing, fantastic medical oncologist um, here in Columbus, Ohio. We share a lot of mutual patients. Uh, she's also my medical oncologist and the patients just absolutely love her and adore her. And so we're so excited to have you on our podcast. Welcome. So welcome, Dr. Diwani. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I'm excited to be here today. And I do have to say, you know, in the Columbus community, there are a lot of people who have you as their oncologist and they love you. They're Aww. like, I love Dr. Diwani so much. And I think that's such a compliment and testimony to who you are taking care of the patient. And I think having that bedside manner is also so important, which both you, Dr. Hala Harvey, Dr. Gawani, you have, you can tell that you really care. So I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much. Why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself? I've been practicing for nine years. I absolutely love what I do. And we often get this question that if you had to get a chance again to do something different, what would you do? And I would like, hands down, this is what I want to do. It is a very gratifying job. Yes, it is emotionally challenging, but there are days where you're so gratified. It's one job where it makes you realize that you are so blessed. What do you love about it? This is a job where my patients trust me, put their life in my hands. Wow. And me being a part of their journey, walking with them throughout their diagnosis and their treatment and towards the end of the treatment, I think that's an incredible journey and a privilege and an honor to be part of that journey and walk through them with that journey. So, yeah, I agree with that. I think it's such a privilege when someone trusts their life and their health in your hands and they're trusting you to know in, to know that you are doing the right thing for them. So Dr. Hal Harvey, you pretty much uh, play the quarterback as far as someone comes to yes. you as a breast surgeon. Yes. We get the biopsy done and then you refer your patients to an oncologist correct. and that is where they come into play Yes, based on your referral to them. That is correct. So I see a patient, they typically come in either with an abnormal mammogram or a breast mass. And when it is very worrisome, I always show images to my patients and when it is very worrisome, I prepare them mentally. I am worried about this mass. You have a biopsy and I'll call you as soon as possible, but I'm going to see you back in a week where I will also not just have the results, but what's called hormone receptors. And Dr. Divani will explain that more in detail here soon. Then I see them back and I go through the images again, the pathophysiology and what stage their cancer is. And then sometimes patients need surgery first. Sometimes they need chemotherapy first. Mm -hmm. And we also are part of a great multidisciplinary conference called a tumor board where there is a lot of medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgeons and radiologists and genetic counselors and pathologists. So we come together as a team to decide what is the best course of treatment for this patient. So it's not just me telling the patient what they should or should not do. So it comes from this multidisciplinary conference. And I think that's one of the great things where we work at that we have the opportunity to do that. So once I know uh, if a patient needs surgery, I take them to surgery. Then after the pathology comes back, then I send them to Dr. Diwani or whoever the medical oncologist is. Um, Really, most of the time, patients do come in asking me for Dr. Diwani because I think she's seen so many patients. Their patients have friends of friends. 
um, if they need chemotherapy first, then they will go see her first, then I do surgery later. So that's one of my questions I have with, with both of you being here. How do you know, are if you're going to do surgery first or chemo first, like who decides that? Yeah, so that's a very excellent question. There are so many different things that come into the play when we are planning a personalized approach for that particular patient. Like Dr. Hala Harvey mentioned that this is a multidisciplinary approach. There are a lot of different things that we look at when the patient gets diagnosed. So they've had a mammogram, they've had ultrasound, and they've had a biopsy. This is the stage where we are trying to decide what route we are going mm -hmm. to take. So the first thing we talk about is what size is the tumor? Are the lymph nodes involved or not? What is the subtype of the tumor and the receptors? And obviously patient's age and menopausal status. These are the factors that we look into and we'll go over the details of each of those factors when we decide um, how we would approach this patient surgery first versus mm -hmm. chemotherapy first. Starting from, for example, if somebody had an imaging um, with my uh, diagnostic mammogram and ultrasound, that tells us what size is the tumor, lymph nodes are involved or not. Then we do a biopsy. From the biopsy, we what we call as your pathology or your biopsy results has a lot of details that are very, very important from both surgical oncology and medical oncology standpoint for planning the treatment. So we look at something called as, so, and this kind of helps in the stage too. So for example, there is something called as DCIX, mm -hmm. which is ductal carcinoma in situ, which is stage zero in breast cancer. When we say ductal carcinoma in situ or stage zero, these are precancerous cells that are still evolving. That means they haven't developed legs yet mm. to travel to other parts of the body or lymph nodes. Then we talk about something called as invasive carcinoma. So when we say invasive, that means they have developed legs, potential to go to lymph nodes and other parts of the body. Then in invasive, we talked about ductal and lobular. So if you look at breast tissue, it looks like grapes. There are ducts and there are lobules. Most of the breast cancer, about 80 to 90% are ductal carcinomas. About 15 to 20% are lobulars. And then there are some other rare subtypes mm -hmm. of breast cancers. So that comes into the play when we are making some treatment decisions too. The second part of the report is the receptor status, very, very important. So whether somebody's estrogen positive, progesterone positive, or HER2 positive. So what are these receptors? On tumor cell, there are receptors that are expressed. So for example, if we say estrogen receptor positive, that means on the tumor cell, there are receptors Estrogen in your body, if it binds to those estrogen or progesterone receptor, it's a feeding mechanism for the cells to proliferate and grow. When we say HER2 positive, this is the expression of the receptor, again, on the tumor cell. So overexpression of this um, receptor on the tumor cell basically makes the tumor to multiply or proliferate or grow. Pretty much somebody took the break off and it doesn't know where to stop and it keeps hmm. going. So these all receptors dictate uh, what exact type of treatment um, would this patient have. Then we also look at in the ER pathology report, the GRADE and KI67, which basically tells us more about the biology and the aggressiveness of the tumor. So size, lymph node, GRADE, and the receptor status up front helps us decide whether chemo first or surgery first, okay. okay? Does the grade 
are you grading it or is the pathologist grading it? It is something the pathologist grades okay. it. So it depends how the nucleus and how the cells are dividing underneath the microscope is what assigns a grade to the tumor. Very commonly, patients do get confused between the grade and the stage. Right. So when they say, oh, I have stage three, but it, they truly could be stage one, but it's grade three. So it's how fast the cells are dividing underneath the microscope assigns them a grade. So those are basically the division of cells underneath the microscope is the grade. The stage is based on the size and the lymph node involvement. Does the stage, it, the higher the number, the faster it's, it would, the cells are dividing? So higher the grade, the higher the cells are dividing. Okay. So grade one is slow growing, grade three is something Got that's it. fast growing. And stage is based off the size and the lymph right. nodes. Got it. This is so, you know, this is helpful because I remember getting my diagnosis and reading through it and it was so confusing. I'm like, what am I? What is this ERPR, you know, HER2 thing and, and the staging? I was so confused, but this actually breaking it down. And I'm sure you did, you, you know, you probably explained it to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, like, I, I'm pretty sure I explained it you to you. You did. And then she has this look on her face like I would have. You did. And yeah. I remember you, yeah. but it's so much information. It's a lot of information. Yeah. And, and it's, it, and that's exactly the reason for this podcast. Yeah. Right. Yes. So, I mean, uh, I spend, you know, 45 minutes, sometimes to an hour, depending on where the patient is in their understanding of the diagnosis, but it is a lot of information that we throw at them. So that's just me. And then Dr. Diwani, and then you know, the med radiation oncology. So everyone like, yes. And so studies have shown patients only retain five to 10%. So that's a great example of Oh my God, because you are in such a shock to yes. know that now you have cancer and this person who, who you don't know from, you know, from Adam is explaining to right. you. And I think it's also the terminology. Correct. This, yeah. this, when you first go in, you don't know this yeah. language. I yeah. understand it now, you know, right. three years out, it, yeah. but it makes sense. But, yeah. you know, because I actually do remember going into my oncologist and, and she was like, okay, tell me what, you know, I remember talking about ERPR and HER2 yeah. and the protein. And I was able to, but I didn't really understand, understand it. I just, I, yeah. I, that's just what I retained. So yeah. I think breaking yeah. this down really, really helps. Uh, yeah. And people could always come back to this and listen to it. And it will yeah. make more sense at that point as well. True. Because, you know, when there is a diagnosis of breast cancer, both patient and family are on an emotional roller coaster. Are, yeah. And you're like, fire hose of information in front right. of them and they're trying to drink yeah. through it through exactly. different appointments. So it is very hard to retain a lot of the information right. that's provided. Are there any benefits to doing one first versus the other, like surgery first, chemo first? There are a lot of benefits of doing chemotherapy first. So one of the big thing we talk about, especially because we do this for bigger tumors or lymph node positive, is to help decrease the amount of surgery that you're going to need. Mm. It helps uh, get a cosmetically good outcome if you're planning for breast uh, conservation or doing a lumpectomy. As far as the lymph node goes, because the treatment that we have for triple negative or HER2 positive are very effective treatments. So it can help clean out the lymph nodes underneath the arm that can decrease the amount of lymph nodes the surgeon removes from your axilla or underneath your arm, which decreases the risk of lymphedema and other complications down the road. So one big thing is help decrease the amount of surgery they would need. Okay. If they went for upfront surgery, there is a very good chance they may need a mastectomy or they may need to remove all the lymph nodes underneath the arm, increasing the risk of lymphedema and other complications mm -hmm. down the road. So that's one big benefit. The second benefit is when you're doing chemotherapy before surgery, 
it helps to know the tumor biology, how this tumor is responding, is it, especially if it's palpable on exam, is this shrinking? So through the treatment, we clinically assess, sometimes we get imaging to assess to make sure that it is shrinking in size. So it helps us assess that. And once they have surgery, if all the tumor is gone, that tells us that this responded very well to chemotherapy and their risk of recurrence is mm. low. If they underwent chemotherapy, had surgery, and there is still some tumor left or lymph node is still positive, that tells me that there is something different about this tumor. I gave all this chemotherapy, most of the tumor went, you know, mm -hmm. got cleared out, but there is there are some few cells like 0.2 centimeter left or still one lymph node was positive. That tells me that there is something different. It is resistant to what I gave. Everything else went, but this 10% of disease is still there. Mm -hmm. So I need to do something different at the back end to further decrease their risk of recurrence. So there, for triple negative, we use some chemo pills. There are clinical trials that we do at the back end to further decrease for her to new positive patients, if they still have residual disease, then we actually do a different drug, not, do not use Herceptin and Progeria as a maintenance. We use a different drug at the back mm -hmm. end to help decrease the risk. And there have been trials that compared Herceptin and Progeria and this drug, and it showed it decreased the risk of recurrence. And those patients actually live longer if they had disease after getting chemotherapy. Wow. And there is actually a really good national clinical trial right now where they are combining two different drugs in terms of effectiveness to further decrease the risk of recurrence. A little bit about like, you know, the drugs that we talk about, the HER2 new and um, the pills, because in oncology world, if you look at a lot of this targeted treatment, um, that is like we hear trastuzumab, pertuzumab, uh, pembrolizumab, which is one of the immunotherapy. When you hear a MAB, M-A-B, mm -hmm. at the end of the drug, that is a monoclonal antibodies. They work by the attaching to the receptors on the tumor cells, mm -hmm. okay? And then there are other targeted treatments that we call as niratinib, tocatinib, or olaparib, pavlociclib, where they end in IB. Mm -hmm. These are usually oral drugs, like pills mm -hmm. that you take, and they act by going inside the cell and inhibit the protein that's involved with the cell growth inside the cell. So that's, those are how the targeted treatment That's works. like a little industry secret. I, feel yeah. like I didn't know that. I mean, yeah. maybe other, you know, other people do, but I had no idea. So, so that's the way to like recognize if it's a MAB, it's IV and it works on top of the cell. It's I, I ends in I and B. It's basically inside the cell okay. and it's a pill. Interesting. Tell me about, I feel like when I was looking at my pathology report and, you know, either one of you could answer this, I feel like there was a percent for like how much estrogen, like dominance. Is that something that's on the pathology report? Yes. So when we, so there are three receptors we talk about, the estrogen, progesterone, mm -hmm. and HER2. So for estrogen and progesterone, there is actually a percentage that's mentioned on the pathology report. And what that means is how strong is that expression of those receptors on the tumor cells? What does that clinically mean? So basically stronger. So if something is 90 or 100%, that means most of the tumor is actually 
driven by estrogen. If it is more like estrogen 5%, progesterone negative, they behave more like a triple negative, which does not have any estrogen or progesterone or mm. HER2 expression. So the percentage that's in the report basically tells us how strongly the tumor is driven by estrogen. So it also predicts the behavior of the tumor cells. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's right. So when the, after a patient has a surgery and um, they have a two centimeter estrogen progesterone receptor positive or receptor negative cancer, mm -hmm. they come to see you, then what do you do then for those patients? So when I have a new patient in my clinic, the way how we approach it, like, you know, ask like one of the common question we get is how age is important in breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So one of the big things that we know that age is actually one of the risk factors for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and then with females and age, very important connection. Right. The age comes into play, especially when we are making treatment because what your body's reserve is at 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90 is very mm -hmm. different to handle things. So there are actually calculators out there, especially for somebody who's elderly, who's going to have an aggressive cancer and is going to need any chemotherapy. Then we use those calculators to see what, how much um, in terms of what is the risk of their toxicity, how much um, toxicity will they have with the XYZ chemotherapy. Uh, in terms of, so answering back to your question, so we do take into consideration the age. The most important thing we look at is their menopause status. Is somebody premenopausal, perimenopausal, or postmenopausal, especially in a hormone driven mm -hmm. breast cancer? Um, so, when we, uh, and coming, so it's a two centimeter tumor, lymph nodes are negative. And then you're looking at how strong is the estrogen progesterone receptor expression. So if it's something strongly estrogen positive, like 90 to 100% or 80%, same for the progesterone and HER2 is negative. And for those patients, now there are tests that we send out, a genomic assays, that is something oncotype, something called as mammoprint. What this test are, these are neat little tests that helps us select which exact patients are going to benefit from chemotherapy? What is the benefit of anti-estrogen treatment in this patient? So it is a more personalized, customized type of report for the patient to know more about their tumor. Because you can have a two centimeter tumor in five different females, lymph node negative, under the microscope, they all look same. When you send out a genomic assay, which basically looks into the biology of the tumor, they all will have a different oncotype score. And some may say that it will benefit for chemotherapy and there will be some that won't benefit for chemotherapy. And oncotype kind of helps us, or a genomic assay helps us trying to differentiate patients who, we, who are truly going to benefit and not, if somebody's not going to benefit chemotherapy, then we can spare them the chemo. So for those patients, we would send for a genomic assay. The assay comes back and tells us, is this somebody who is going to benefit from chemotherapy? What is their nine-year risk of cancer coming back anywhere in their body if they take five years of anti-estrogen treatment? One of the things that I want to point out is when we look at the report, very common uh, misconception, there is a percentage there 
So you have your oncotype score. Next to the score, there is a percentage. It may be 5% or 10%, 14%. Where, and on the top, it says risk of recurrence, distant risk of recurrence at nine years. For example, if it says 10%, that 10% is after you have taken five years of anti-estrogen mm. treatment. So usually people say, oh, my risk is 10%. What if I didn't do you know, anti-estrogen treatment, then it pretty much doubles your risk. So whatever your risk is, it takes it down by 50%. So if your report says 10%, if you did not take any anti-estrogen treatment, that number becomes 20%. Okay. So that 10% is after you have done at least five years of anti-estrogen treatment, because people usually assume, oh, that's my risk, but that is after the okay. treatment. So does everyone get an oncotype? Yeah, so that's a good question, right? So- yeah, so as far as oncotype, when um, usually a lot of the surgeons do uh, um, order oncotype and they're always no, not one size fits all. So there are always these gray zones where we have a common discussion and say, hey, do we need to send oncotype mm-hmm. on this patient or not? So how do we look at this? So all lymph node negative patients, especially if the tumor size is less than three centimeters, we do go ahead and send the oncotype for those patients. If somebody is lymph node positive, so if they're more than three lymph node positive, there is no oncotype. The standard is to go ahead and give chemo to Mm -hmm. those patients. If the lymph nodes are between one to three, that's where our gray zone begins because you have to look at the studies to see what population was included. How many of them actually had truly three lymph node positive? Because if you look at the studies for one to three lymph node positive, most patients actually had one or two lymph nodes. There were a very small population with three lymph node positive. Mm-hmm. So if I have somebody who is really young, has that higher grade and has three lymph node positive, I would not feel comfortable sending an oncotype. And I would say that, you know, we need to move forward with chemotherapy. Okay. So one to three lymph nodes depends in terms of what other things we look at, what their age is, how big the tumor is, what the grade of the tumor is to decide if we can send an oncotype And that's or actually not. more recent, let me write that to you. That is correct. Yeah, just in the last couple of years, the patients who have lymph node positive disease are getting oncotype. In the past, they did not. They pretty much got chemotherapy. Am I right in that? That is correct. Yeah. So this is, there, there's most recently, there was this trial, which is the Rx Ponder trial, which are now trying to spare some of the, uh, lymph node positive patients with chemotherapy, but before that, the standard of care with lymph yeah. node positive was to give chemotherapy to everybody. And also, to just to go back to your question, who who does not need oncotype? So, someone who is what we call triple negative, meaning they do not have the hormone receptors, mm. or someone who is HER2 new positive does not get an oncotype. So, uh, the only patients who get an oncotype is hormone receptor positive and HER2 receptor negative, and okay. again, less than three lymph nodes. But that just it's amazing how quickly things can change oh yeah because my I feel like my yeah. diagnosis was recent 2018 but a lot has changed oh yeah and Dr. Dewani and I were talking about that <laughs> before the podcast and I was yeah. blown away because tell them about what you said about AC okay so um when we talk about chemotherapy uh in terms of so most of the triple negative and HER2 positive patients require chemotherapy before or after they're going to need chemotherapy based off their tumor size and most of them need it. So let's talk about the HER2 positive. So 
the interesting part is like, as I said, like on the tumor cells, there is expression of all these HER2 receptors, uh, which is pretty much like taking the break off of the cell and the cell keeps going. It doesn't know where to stop. Back in 1990s, um, the drug trastuzumab and pertuzumab later on came off, which are pretty much very targeted types of treatment. What it does, it specifically blocks that receptor on the tumor cell. So it's pretty much putting that break back on and stops the cell proliferation. So we use those two drugs, the anti-HER2 drugs, what we call all the targeted treatments. For them to work, it requires chemotherapy backbone for it to effectively do its job. So we combine chemo with those targeted treatments. What chemo to combine? That's a big question. So there have been different trials that looked at AC and Taxol combined with Herceptin Prajada and something called as Taxotere, which is again a taxin with carboplatinum and uh, Herceptin and Prajada. And when those two regimens came out, it was a lot of medical oncologists would, you know, pick a regimen in terms of what they would think is the best for that patient at that point. As more and more studies started coming out and longer follow-ups were done, we saw that the AC, Taxol, Herceptin, Prajada, and the other regimen, the TCHP, which is your Taxotere, Carboplatin, Herceptin, and Prajada, are pretty much equal in terms of efficacy. So this is where my question came from, is I, I was asking Dr. Dewani, my friend and I, we were, we were around the same age, stage three, lymph and involvement. I had 16 rounds of chemo and she had six. And I wanted to know why, like, mm. why was there such a difference? And then she tells me like AC isn't really used as much. much now. And that was like, what? I was saying this three years ago, like, like, yeah. how, like, things so changed fast. very rapidly. So when they, when you look at the data, as far as effectiveness wise, there is not a difference. Previously, we used to think, okay, if somebody has inflammatory breast cancer or a lot of lymph nodes that are positive, maybe we should use AC. But as the time trended, there's not a whole lot of difference because you know those subset of population was small, but we did not see a difference. There are still some experts throughout the country, very few who are still using AC based, mm -hmm. but I would say 90, 95% of the wow. physicians are using uh, TCHP type of regimen. And one of the things with AC we talk about, the, because you know if the effectiveness is same, mm -hmm. then you start looking into the toxicity profile. Mm. With AC, we worry about some long-term side effects. Um, there is a distant risk of something called as myelodysplastic syndrome or leukemia, that's a remote risk down the road. And again, Herceptin and Prajada is something that can affect how the heart pumps mm. and so does the AC. So when you combine the two, then you're taking some additional risk in terms of cardiomyopathy, which is the functioning of the heart. That's so amazing. And this information is helpful because you know, as a patient, six chemos versus 16. Yeah. It's a huge difference. It's huge. And that and it's not just the treatment, yeah. but the, the mental toll going to chemo takes on you, the emotional toll, the physical toll. If someone said, mom, you can get six instead of 16. I would have been like, sign yeah. me up. Yeah. Like sign me up. So Monica, I think to your point, um, so years ago, like we talked about Oncotype now in like before 2004, Oncotype started in 2004, and correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Before that, everyone got chemo more than a centimeter of tumor. You got chemotherapy. So, uh, so those women got chemotherapy. 
And now if you were to look back, they probably did not need chemotherapy. Mm. And it's same for lymph node positive. Correct, now. same for lymph node positive. Everyone got chemotherapy up until just a couple of years ago. We, what we learned about cancer, breast cancer specifically is it's not the size, it's the biology of the breast cancer. So all these genomic assays, they look at the biology. So just because I have a two centimeter cancer that is hormone receptor negative, uh, hormone receptor positive, hormone receptor negative, and you have a two centimeter tumor, is the same thing, but the biology may be different. We may need a different type of treatment. I may need chemotherapy. You may not need mm -hmm. chemotherapy. So that's why, you know, it's important for people listening to this podcast. It's important to really seek your doctor's that who's keeping up to date with things because things change so rapidly. I was going to ask that. How do you yeah. stay up to date well, with all these that's, that's why, like, I mean, uh, Dr. Duane and I, we call each other nurse because we are like, I get so like excited. Like there's a conference going on right now. You know, the place that I work, it was, did not allow me to go to the conference because of COVID numbers, but I signed up regardless and I'm going to watch videos. We watch a lot of like videos online, go to a lot of conferences. I just came back from a conference two weeks ago where I learned new techniques on a mastectomy. So you and just, we do a lot of note sharing too. Yeah, she would send me yes. PowerPoints or yes. notes she's taken, yeah. something I do. So we so, have the same desire to keep learning, which uh, I think sometimes people like, you know, with the busyness of life and taking care of your family, you just kind of lose that. But mm -hmm. I think it's in the breast cancer world, I can only speak for that because that's what I do is, you really have to keep up to date with things and talk to other people, keep learning, um, you know, and keep up with the changing guidelines. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, we both train residents and fellows and I tell the fellows, whenever you're looking at a study, so like she mentioned our expander, which looks at a woman who has hormone receptor positive, her tumor receptor negative, lymph node positive disease. There's what was called the Taylor-X study similar thing looking at the oncotype on this women who are hormone receptor positive or receptor negative, but lymph node, lymph node negative. There were like 10,000 women in that study. And don't, and I, I tell the residents and fellows, don't take this lightly. These 10,000 women, they sacrifice themselves to be randomized into chemo version or not no chemo, mm -hmm. you know, arm. So it's, they get randomized to chemo versus no chemo. So those women who probably did not need chemo took chemo, why? So that someone in the future can benefit from this trial. Mm. So that, and I guess this is a good plugin for trials. It's really important to participate in trials because it may or may not help you, but it's going to help the future generation. And you have to think of the people that come after us. That's that, what I think about Herceptin and Progetta yeah. because that's like, that. I don't know how new it is, it's but like, new. but someone, people participated in this trial yes. to see mm -hmm. how effective it was. Yes. And I benefited from that. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. that's exactly correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And, you know, knowledge is power. And I think the more you know about your disease and what options you have, it's important. But also, I think it's important to seek out people who are keeping up with the guidelines. Mm -hmm. And again, um, we do have the multidisciplinary conference where we talk about these things. So mm -hmm. we are lucky, I think, to be mm -hmm. able to participate, participate. in that. On a Absolutely. So. Dr. Jawani, what's like a number one question that you get asked by your patients? The big question that I get asked is, why did I get this? Mm. I have no family history. So we know the statistics that one in eight females get breast cancer. And how we look at is about 80% of the time, there is no family history. Um, and we call them as sporadic breast cancer. It just happened by chance. And there are certain risk factors that might have contributed to it. There are 15 to 20%, what we call as familial. 
which is very strong family history. But when you do a genetic testing, you do not pick up any abnormal gene. And then there are other which are, again, 15% of them who have family history and a positive gene. So one of the updates in terms of genetics, we use for years and years, we tested everybody for BRCA1 and 2. And most recently, we are we know a lot more different genes that we are detecting on genetic testing that increases the risk for breast cancer and some other cancers. Um, nowadays, we are doing a lot more genetic testing than we used to do even like three years ago or five years ago, because a lot of the genetic testing now actually has treatment implications. So if you have like a BRCA1 or 2 mutation positive and you have a high risk, uh, uh, cancer, like a triple negative cancer or a hormone positive cancer, then you become eligible for an additional pill after your surgery and chemotherapy. What message, you know, you see so many people with, with cancer. What, what do you want them to know? When you start the journey, you feel like you're alone. But I tell my patients, nobody fights alone. Mm -hmm. Think that this is a bump in the road and we are here to help you cross that bump and take you on the other side of the road very safely. Yeah, I think you have to really partner with your providers, with your with doctors, with your nurses, with the oncologists. And you really have to, I mean, obviously you have to feel comfortable with your team of people that are helping you to take care of you, but also lean on your family and friends and have that group of people that are your support system. Mm -hmm. uh, it, does, it also happens where sometimes people will intention, people will say, we should do this or that, or my friend, this or that. And it, you cannot compare your journey right. to other person's journey. And again, the same reason is because not every cancer is the same. And so just because what you had may not be what the other person has and you just don't know all the details about mm -hmm. things. Yeah, I think sometimes people and, just yeah. try to relate some information, yeah. but sometimes yeah. it's not helpful when it's, well, so, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, it's a different topic, but I, I often get phone calls from friends of friends of friends who want me to talk to their friends and, <laughs> and you know, and it's, I mean, I don't mind doing that. And Dr. Diwani doesn't mind doing that. It's just, I think it's almost a disservice without seeing the patient, without looking at the images, without looking at the pathology, you know, without examining the patient. I think we just cannot, you know, I mean, you have the knowledge, but we just cannot tell that person what the right course of treatment is. Because you have to look yeah. at so many different factors with right. the patient in front mm -hmm. of the exam, because everything that we do impacts the decision we make. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, even just like you said, you know, before the oncotype, you could have five women with the same like yes. thing, exactly. and then it comes yes. back and it, you know, they may be Some will get chemo and some may not get yes. chemo. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, yes. That's a great point. Yeah, before the oncotype, I believe 90, 100 people out of 100 people got chemotherapy. But then after, during the studies, it was found out that only 10 people benefit from chemotherapy. So all these 90 women were getting chemo and not having any benefits. So Dr. Diwani, let me ask you this. You and I share a lot of young women, pre young pregnant women mm -hmm. that, that have come to us with breast cancer. How do you deal with that? Sort of, how do you deal with that discussion? And young women who's pregnant now is coming to you or a young woman who's not pregnant, but wants to get pregnant, pregnant. and coming to you. So yes, um, so those are um, definitely challenging discussions with patient because here you are young, never had kids, but you wanna have kids in future. And we know that chemo can affect your fertility. And I think it is very important to help patient think through that process. So for young females who desire to have children in future, we send them to a fertility specialist who helps with egg preservation. During their treatment, we put them in a, uh, through a 
chart that they get on a monthly basis um, during their chemotherapy that kind of helps preserve the ovarian function by making the ovaries go to sleep with that chart. As far as the fertility preservation, basically, um, this is where the process where they go ahead and do the egg retrieval mm. and save it for in future. So typically, once they have finished with all their treatment and everything, we ask them to wait for two years before they become pregnant. Okay. And one of the misconceptions is that um, does pregnancy increase the risk for breast cancer? It doesn't. We do not have any data as of right now that pregnancy increases the risk okay. for breast cancer. How about the fertility drugs that women take? So the data is a little bit controversial. I had a discussion with one of the fertility specialists and he said, if I go through the literature, there is not a strong evidence that it uh, increases, but there are, you will find a co controversial, but overall, if you put all the literature together, it does not significantly increase the risk. Yeah. And then every time, you know, for everything that is risk benefit involved, so you're pretty much weighing risk versus benefit. And if your benefit overweighs the risk, then you proceed that route. I know you had asked me one time, why do I have to take this anti-estrogen pill, but this other person does not oh, need yeah. to take it? So why, why do some people take the anti-estrogen? Yeah, so if you have uh, some, if your tumor is expressing estrogen and progesterone, mm -hmm. on, and we get that question a lot from her to positive patients because they've got chemotherapy. So if you look at her to positive, they can be hormone positive, ERPR positive, or ERPR negative. Mm -hmm. So if they are ERPR negative, that means there is no expression of estrogen on their tumor cells, and they're not going to benefit from chemotherapy. Or if they're triple negative, where they, again, right. when we call it triple negative, because there is no expression of estrogen, progesterone, mm -hmm. or HER2. But if they are ERPR positive and HER2 positive, or ERPR positive and HER2 negative, those are the patients that would benefit from anti-estrogen. And usually for anybody who has expression more than 5% of estrogen or progesterone, mm -hmm we offer them anti-estrogen. Okay, yeah. that's helpful. Yeah. And uh, in terms of anti-estrogen treatment, when we talk about like the menopausal pre and post-menopausal, for pre-menopausal, especially if they have a higher risk disease, this is something in last few years that we have started to do differently where we are doing a more aggressive way of suppressing estrogen. So we give them a shot on a monthly basis that induces a medical menopause in those female, and then we add a pill to do a peripheral block of estrogen. So that's a little bit more aggressive than just using tamoxifen. Mm -hmm. And comparing that, the studies have shown that those patients, um, we actually increase the cure rate in those patients by doing a more aggressive way of anti-estrogen treatment for patients who are higher risk for recovery. That's great information. You're such a full of good knowledge. You and, are. This was and, I learned so yes. much. And the Thank way that you. you explain it, it's so easy for people to understand. And uh, um, you're so kind and so warm and so compassionate. So oh, thank you. Deepa. That's why patients really love you. So yeah. I tried to simplify. I hope I didn't use a lot of medical jargon in there to make this complicated, but I tried to simplify. No, I understood it. Yeah. So that's always good. <laughs> I need things broken down in a way to understand. So. Yeah, you thank you so job. much for thank being our guest so today. It's so nice yes. to have no, you here. I'm so excited and thank you. Yeah. Thank you for me bringing me to this podcast. Thank you for taking the time out of your you know, weekend. So we really appreciate yeah. that so much. Thank you. So Monica, what'd you think of the conversation? That was so helpful. And I, yeah. I, it's like, what I love about this though, is that you, anyone can go to this podcast at any time in their diagnosis and 
and listen to it and have things explained to them and broken down in a way that they would understand. So she did a wonderful job doing yes, that. Yes, yes. And I, I like, you know, like we were talking about earlier, I think uh, women really feel like they got hit by a train or, you know, when they get told you have cancer, you know, I'm giving them a lot of information and it feels like, oh my gosh, what did she just say? And then they go to her. But I think if anyone has any questions regarding medical oncology, this is a great podcast to listen to. And Dr. Diwani is phenomenal and so kind, so warm, so compassionate. And I can see why people love her. And uh, I can see why you love her. She reminds me of oh. you as well. Like <laughs> just that kind, compassionate. You know, I have been told that before and it's such a huge compliment for me. Yeah. So thank yeah. you. So. All right. Well, that's it for today's yeah. podcast. Thank, thank you, you so much like for listening. It. Yeah. Have a great day. Yep. Bye. Bye.